Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, well, let me pray for us. Father God, I do thank you for allowing us to gather this evening for the purpose of growing in our knowledge and understanding and application of biblical truth. I pray that you would bless us as we think and as we discuss and as we think about your scriptures and what they mean on a systematic level. I pray that you would give us great confidence in your word as a result of our time together tonight. I pray that we would take to heart the words of our brother Peter, inspired by the Spirit of God, given to us, preserved for us, for our edification. And help us now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you can keep your Bibles open to 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, By the way, in case you didn't know, I I did introduce it this way, but this is a course um, that's just on systematic theology. Um, Last week, what we did was describe and define what systematic theology is. We talked about how it differs from other forms of theological uh, exercise, historical theology, and biblical theology, and various things. Uh, And then we talked about some of those basic assumptions of systematic theology. Um, And we came to the conclusion that all endeavor toward understanding and ordering our knowledge of God in a systematic way, all of that relies principally on the Word of God, right? on the Bible. And then we finished up the lesson um, talking about how it's important for us not to simply study the Word of God for the sake of gaining information, but to delight in the Word of God for the sake of our own love for Jesus and love for His truth. So, oh, by the way, someone asked me last week, Uh, Gabe, I think it was you, asked me what foundation apart from the Bible have theologians started with in their attempts at doing systematic theology. Um, And I pulled together a few of those just to answer that question. So if you grab a systematic theology off of your shelf or off of one of our shelves, you might see them start in a different place than I'm starting. Um, And here's here's a, a little bit. There's six different systematic theologies that are either in our library or in my library to kind of give you an idea of where theologians generally start uh, when, they, when they begin the endeavor of systematic theology. J.L. Dagg, uh, apart from Nick Lamb, I doubt that many of you are familiar with the name J.L. Dagg. J.L. Dagg is one of the foundational Reformed Baptist theologians. Um, he wrote a manual of theology back in 1857 was when it was first published. And he began his work with, the, with understanding that we as creatures have an obligation to seek an understanding of our creator. And then he addressed the sources of knowledge that give rise to our theology. And he established the inspiration, transmission, origin, and authority of the Bible right there. So J.L. Dagg pretty well started with the scriptures as the foundation. James Pettigrew Boyce, are you all familiar with Boyce? Boyce was the original author of the Abstract of Principles, um, and he was, which is the foundational theological document for the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, in case you did not know that. James Pettigrew Boyce was also a Reformed Baptist. He was a contemporary of J.L. Dagg, and he begins with the being of God. Right, so Gabe, we were talking last week about some theologians start with the scriptures and everything rises out of that. Some theologians start with philosophy Um, cosmological arguments, the necessity of God, the existence and being of God, and they argue their way to the scriptures, and then the the scriptures become that clarifying voice that gives rise to our theology. And that's what Boyce does. He he starts with the being of God, and then he gets to reason and revelation. Wayne Grudem, which is one that I recommend if you've never read through a systematic theology, it's very devotional in the way that it's written. He begins with bibliology, with the doctrine of scripture. John Calvin, Anybody ever heard of the, of the Institutes? John Calvin begins with the general knowledge of God planted in the mind of man. He, he, he starts with philosophy. And six chapters in, he begins to address the need for Scripture to be our sure guide to the knowledge of our Creator because in our fallen state, we are corrupted in our understanding. So Calvin 
has a, a pretty firm understanding of depravity. He's one of the guys that coined the phrase. So John MacArthur begins with Scripture in his book, Christian Doctrine. Burkhoff, I mentioned Burkhoff last week. He's a Presbyterian theologian. He starts with the doctrine of God, and he never develops a doctrine of Scripture. <laughs> but he assumes the Scripture's trustworthiness and truthfulness all throughout his theology. So depending on which book you pick up, which theologian you're working from, they're probably good. They're going to start in one of those two ways. They're going to start either with Scripture first, or they're going to reason their way to Scripture by philosophy, and then they're going to use Scripture as a launch pad, if they're faithful Bible-believing theologians. Any questions about that? I just wanted to make, because I didn't really know uh, when you asked that question last week, so I just wanted to address it. By the way, since we're studying another question that was asked last week, and by the way, if y'all have questions, I will stop. We'll talk about it. Another question that was asked last week was, what was the first systematic theology that was written. And we kind of hem and hawed around because I don't know the history of creeds and confessions uh, aside from the basic things like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Didache, and those kind of things that were early. Uh, And then you've got um, the early church fathers and the things that they wrote, their apologetic works. And then you've got Catholic dogma, which comes up in about the 5th or 6th century. Um, Well, this is a book that was written by... Uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, and it's on the importance of the Apostles' Creed, discovering authentic Christianity in an age of counterfeits. Um, If you want this book, and I haven't already given you one, this is yours. You can come grab it, um, or I'll throw it at you. Probably shouldn't do that. All right, so that's, I'm probably not going to give a book away every time we meet, because I don't have that many books, or at least duplicate copies, but there you go. All right, so last week we talked about systematic theology and its foundations. This week, we're going to build on that, and we're going to develop a more thorough understanding of the doctrine of Scripture. So that's where we are. We're understanding the role that Scripture plays in developing a systematic theology, the nature of Scripture, the character of Scripture, the first category we're going to look at, and we're going to look at this again next week, and I think Jeff's going to come in, and he's going to talk a little bit, maybe one session on the, the canon of Scripture, maybe the historicity of Scripture. Um, but we're dealing with some of the characteristics of Scripture. And the two that we're going to talk about tonight are the fact that the Scripture is trustworthy and the Scripture is clear. So the doctrine of the trustworthiness of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture. Right? First, let's talk about the trustworthiness of Scripture. The Bible that we hold in our hands is trustworthy. It is reliable because it was not produced by the will of man, as we read a minute ago. It was given to us by the very Spirit of God. So here's a a doctrinal statement that might be familiar to some of you. This is a uh, kind of a summary statement by R.C. Sproul of the Westminster Confession. He says this, Holy Scripture being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. Now, what does that phrase imply? What's that? It is perfect. It's infallible. But it says, upon all matters upon which it touches. The scriptures don't teach about everything. Right? I mean, the scriptures don't have you know, particular theories of, um, I don't know, engineering and how to, how to build concrete and you know, things like that. It's not a medical textbook. Right? There's, a, there's a focus and a scope to it. Now, other people, Luke might be able to help us out with that, but not, the scriptures aren't going to teach us on everything, but those things to which the scripture speaks. It speaks with infallible divine authority. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Now, no one had a more settled trust in the reliability of Scripture than Jesus, right? And he requires no less than that from us as his followers. Think about it, right? When Jesus was engaged in debate, it didn't matter who it was, the Pharisees, 
or it's usually the Pharisees, but you know, let's say later on in the Passion Week and he's engaging with the Sanhedrin and the, the Sadducees, it's, when he's engaging with them and they're debating a theological matter, what's the common phrase that Jesus says to draw them back to, all right, here's my trump card. Yeah, it is written. Or he'll even rebuke them and ask them the question, have you not read? Seven different times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus rebukes the folks he's talking to because he says to them, have you not read what the scriptures have said? You've developed this theological paradigm over here. You're, you're holding to the doctrines of man and you've put them over the doctrines of God. But have you not read what God said? Jesus himself is relying upon the trustworthiness of the word of God. Um, the Christian faith requires that we trust in the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible. Have you had many encounters with individuals who you know, maybe have some developed argument uh, against the trustworthiness of Scripture? If you do, begin to think about that. In just a minute, I'm going to ask, and maybe we'll open the floor, we'll talk about it a little bit. But many have tried to deny the faith. They've tried to create their own little form of Christian religion that's very selective about how the Bible is to be understood and how the Bible is to be trusted, how we're to interpret this over that. Um, one of the more recent trends, well, let me just ask you, are you familiar with some of those typical arguments against the trustworthiness and reliability of Scripture? Anybody want to throw one out there? Yep, an understanding of the way in which numbers are used in Scripture to describe a massive event. Um, I mean, numerology is not just found within apocalyptic literature in the Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel. It's found in other places as well. But yeah, yeah. anything else? Yeah, that's a pretty common one. No, the Bible contradicts itself. And generally, when, they, when I've had those discussions, they start talking about, well, the Catholic Church thinks this, and, well, that's not a matter of the Bible contradicting itself. That's a matter of man's understanding and interpretation of the Bible. Uh, and, but people will even use that, pluralism, as the argument against the reliability and trustworthiness of Scripture. If Scripture's so, so trustworthy, then, then why do all these different people read it and look at it and think differently about it, Right? Come up with different conclusions. Anything else? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Dan Brown and his work of fiction have pretty much sealed it for the, the secular world, right? I mean, if this was all this man-made deal, right? A king decided he was going to... An emperor decided he was going to settle this whole debate. Well, that's, that's not... It's not actual history, but people believe it. But yeah, it was put together by men for power plays and various things. There's some modern stuff going on that's kind of new. Um, one of the most recent trends that you need to be on guard against is something called standpoint epistemology. Have you ever heard that? It's a weird term, weird, weird phrase. Epistemology is the, the study of what what gives rise, like sources of knowledge, what gives rise to knowledge. And standpoint epistemology, it, it's this subset of critical theory. If you were here with us last year when we did a, a, a study through critical theory, you know, critical theory, it, it teaches that we must learn to understand the different strata of identity and the different spectrum of identities that people come from. And standpoint epistemology takes critical theory and it applies it to the point of interpreting texts, especially religious texts, and it teaches that in order, in order for us to really understand the Bible, we have to understand it and interpret it from the perspective of all of these various groups within an identity spectrum. So here's what that means. They would claim that we should read and seek to understand the Bible from the perspective of a 21st century feminist. Right? And then we really understand it. 
or if it's not you know, that subset of people, it's from the African-American community. They need to interpret the Bible for us and tell us what it actually means because they know what it means to be an oppressed people or whatever. And, or maybe it's from the perspective of the LGBTQ plus IA spectrum. We've, we've got to let them interpret the Bible for us. And it's all about um, making sure that every individual group has their own interpretation because there's not one interpretation, there's many. Standpoint epistemology, it, it's a problem. And you just need to be aware of it. There's, there are books that are coming out. There are the, theologies that are being written, again, from critical perspectives. And a lot of the names that are attached to that would probably surprise you. Whether it's old-fashioned theological liberalism. Theological liberalism just says, basically, the Bible's myth. The Bible is mythology. All of that stuff about miracles, all that stuff about supernatural intervention, that's all mythology. So we can just put, put aside two-thirds of the Bible as mythology. Or it, whether it's that, or it's modern standpoint epistemology, or it's someone who had a college professor that hated Christians and didn't believe that God existed and all of those things. There are plenty of people out there that don't want us to trust the Bible, that don't want us to believe that it's trustworthy. Sure, yep, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, we, we, could, we could go into the effects of postmodern thought to understand why uh, there is no such thing as an absolute truth. We're all just talking about little subjective experiences of truth. There is no, there is no one overarching truth, and that's part of this. Um, but yes, that's exactly what they're saying. Yep. But there are plenty of people who are arguing that the Bible is not trustworthy. Or that only parts of it are trustworthy. <laughs> and one thing that the Bible cannot be is moderately trustworthy. Right? Both the Old Testament Jewish faith and the New Testament Christian faith are intricately tied to actual human history. The events that took place and are recorded for us are events that took place in time and space and under the guise of eyewitnesses. The most important claims of Christianity are historical claims. That Jesus was born of a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem. That thousands of people saw him and heard him and experienced his ministry and, and saw countless miracles that took place at his hands, the fact that he was turned over by his own people, that he was crucified by Roman authorities in Jerusalem, and then three days later was raised from the dead only to be seen by more than 500 people at a given time. I mean, all of these claims from Scripture are intricately tied to actual human events. These facts and thousands more make up the historical evidence that fueled the biblical authors and that fueled the, the Christian movement, just the spread of the gospel in the world. These men wrote what they saw. They wrote what they heard. They wrote from their firsthand experience. And yet, what Peter tells us here in this text is that beneath all of that was the superintention of God by His Holy Spirit. God was also present in this. So, I don't want to read 2 Peter again, but I do want to go back to it, and I want to talk about some of the things that he mentions here. And, and this would be a good text to maybe memorize or think through as you're discussing with other people. He makes clear, Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not as though he's oblivious to the fact that there are a lot of people, even in his own day, that were saying, oh, that, that didn't actually happen. That's mythology, right? But the Bible is not a myth. The Word of God is not a myth. Peter's addressing a problem that was common in his day. There were people in the church in the first century that were dismissing the claims of Scripture as mere mythology. And they were very familiar with mythology, right? They understood 
Greco-Roman mythology. They understood ancient Near Eastern mythologies. This was not him casting something into the 21st century. This is something he was dealing with right there. There were individuals denying certain aspects of the gospel and Christian teaching, the second coming of Christ especially, and they were looking at them as nothing more than a, a cleverly concocted story. And Peter is saying, wait a minute, I was there. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I was there on the mountain when Christ was transfigured in front of us. So we, we face similar problems today. There are plenty of individuals. I know that um, my seminary, the seminary that I attended and graduated from, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, it was the kind of the, the nexus point for one of the greatest controversies in Southern Baptist history when a guy by the name of Ralph Elliott published a commentary on the book of Genesis and he declared, and he was on staff at Midwestern at the time, he declared that the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis was, was all mythology. And, and what we found out at the time, this was in 1951, by the way, this was a long time ago, what, what we found out at that time was that his sentiments were not unique that many professors, many teachers, many seminary heads, and many pastors within the Southern Baptist Convention believed that very thing. And that spurred on what we know as the conservative resurgence. Um, I, I won't get into that history, but it's a really interesting story. Um, but l let's, let's go back and think about this. Have you ever had a conversation, maybe it was in an, an academic institution, where a professor or a teacher tried to convince you that you should abandon your trust in the scriptures. By the time I went to that seminary, they, they had, the, the conservative resurgence had happened. I wasn't taught heresy in, you know, in my days there. I was taught plenty of other stuff I disagreed with, but not everything. But what about you? I got a little girl. Well, she's not a little girl anymore. I got a young lady, a daughter, who just started her first semester of college and and I'm concerned about what she's taught, specifically the things she might be taught that would undermine her trust in the Word of God. Because over the last 50 years plus, right, so now we're 70 years plus, within our own circles, critics have attacked the reliability of Scripture. And over and over they have attacked it, and yet there is no serious scholarship to back up those claims about the Bible not being trustworthy and true. In fact, there is plenty of scholarship to suggest or to give you confidence. If you're looking at the, you know, through the lens of scholarship, there's plenty of scholarship to give you confidence in the Word of God. The biblical documents that we have are historically reliable. When you look at, and these are categories that we look at, not just within biblical literature, but all ancient literature, we look at manuscript evidence, we look at archaeological evidence, we look at um, statistical evidence, and in the case of Scripture, we look at prophetic evidence. And, and based upon all of these things, the Bible is the most historically credible book ever written in human history. And I know that that's a big claim. Are y'all familiar with a man by the name of Norm Geisler? Some of y'all are. He passed away in 2019. He was a Christian apologist. He was a staunch defender of biblical inerrancy. Actually wrote some really helpful books on the subject. Uh, he writes this, by comparison with the New Testament, most other books from the ancient world are not nearly so well authenticated. The well-known New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger estimated that the Mahabharata of Hinduism is copied with only about 90% accuracy, and Homer's Iliad with only about 95% accuracy. By comparison, the New Testament is about 99.5% accurate. So the New Testament text can be reconstructed with over 99% accuracy. And what is more, 100% of the message of the New Testament has been preserved in its manuscripts. I'll give you that quote if you want it. I'll, I'll actually send my notes out to you if, you if you'd like to have those. There was a biblical... Um, skeptic by the name of Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. He was a Scottish archaeologist, and it was his goal to set out to disprove 
the historical reliability of the books of Luke and Acts. If you didn't know, Luke and Acts were written by the same person. You can think about it as, you know, two volumes of one magnum opus. So, um, so he sets out, Sir William Ramsey set out uh, on several trips through the Mediterranean, all the while comparing archaeological evidence with the biblical record. And he discovered that every fact that Luke, the author of Acts, recorded was spot on. And as is often the case with individuals who go out on one of these kind of trips, he actually became a Christian. This skeptic, archaeological skeptic, right? He became a Christian. And here's Ramsey's conclusion to all of his work. He says, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. Luke is an historian of first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. So it's hard to, it's hard to claim bias from a guy who started out as a, a skeptic. But you can read about that story online. Um, we aren't the only generation to face critics and skeptics about the reliability of Scripture. From the first century, 2 Peter, all the way down to our own day, the Scriptures have been under attack, and by God's grace, they have withstood 2,000 years of scrutiny. Scrutiny. The New Testament Gospels, the book of Acts, and the letters of the New Testament churches don't fall into the category of myth or legend. Right? They fall into a different category, the category of historical, verifiable fact. Kevin DeYoung, in his little book um, on trusting the Word of God, he writes this, The Greeks and Romans had lots of myths. They didn't care whether the stories were literally true. No one was interested in the historical evidence for the claim that Hercules was the illegitimate son of Zeus. It was a myth. It was a fable. It was a tall tale. It was a story to entertain and help make sense of the world. Paganism was built on the power of mythology. And they knew that. But Christianity, different. It's built on an understanding that what is written in the Word is true, historically verifiable truth. But how? How does the message of the New Testament tie itself to actual historical events? Well, let's talk about eyewitnesses. How important do you think those eyewitnesses are? Very important. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is back in verse 16 of uh, 2 Peter 1. We were eyewitnesses. We received glory from the Father. When he received glory from the Father and the voice was born. I don't know why I had a hard time saying voice was born earlier, but I was struggling with it. But when that voice was born from, uh, from heaven, we heard it. We ourselves heard this very voice, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's writing to a group of people. He's saying, look, I was there. I saw it. I'm not making this up. There is not the slightest hint of mythology in what Peter is doing. There's no, no hint of legend in his mind. These are actual events. And he, as well as James and John, saw it with their own eyes. They were eyewitnesses to the transfiguration of Jesus. All four of the canonical Gospels were written no more than 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. And most of the epistles were written between 15 and 25 years after Jesus' death. Now, why do you think that that might be important? And by the end of the first century, they were in, they were in circulation. And by the third century... They were the dominant understanding of what was being uh, trusted throughout Christendom. Why do you think those early writings were important? Okay, yeah, absolutely. It takes time for legend to develop. How? Why? Why can't we just make it up right now? That's right. People are still alive. If you start making up stuff, which, which actually did happen, right? In the, the late 2nd century B.C., uh, about 175 B.C., the first so-called Gnostic Gospels were written. And at that time, there was exactly what you might expect. There was a lot of legendary material that was finding its way into those books. And that's why the Orthodox Church rejected them. But early on, the biblical accounts were recalling something that happened when hundreds, if not thousands of people were still alive to verify what was said, what was done, the individual that was healed, those who were there to see Lazarus come out of the grave, 
They were eyewitnesses to his ministry. If legends were to creep into the New Testament accounts, they would have to have been written later so that there would have been no eyewitnesses that could point out the errors. So eyewitness accounts are critical to this. The eyewitness testimony is powerful evidence for the trustworthiness of Scripture. But there's something even more convincing than eyewitness testimony. And Peter talks about it here in the text. He talks about, in verse 19, that we have the prophetic word, and here's the phrase he uses, more fully confirmed. And you would do well to pay attention to it. What's he talking about there? The prophetic word, more fully confirmed. It's an amazing statement, and here's what he means. He means that the prophetic word that we hold in our hands was actually a gift from the Spirit of God. In verse 20, he says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That's pretty definitive, right? No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So not only do we have the historical reliability of of Scripture that's just evidenced in all of the study and statistics and things like that, not only do we have the eyewitnesses, but we also have the reliability of God that rests upon God. And for us, that does matter. It actually matters. The Bible is God's speech. We talked about that a little bit last week. It's God's communication to man, written down, preserved for us. And this means that God's authority resides with his word. Yes, the word of God was given to us through human instrumentality, but that doesn't make it any less true or authoritative or divine. God chose to use the intellect, skills, and personality of fallible men to write down what was divine and infallible. It's a quote from DeYoung. I think, it, I think it's a, uh, a fair use of, of the English language there. Yes, in, I mean, fallible men were used by God to produce something divine and fallible. The intellect and the skills and the experiences. Have I mean, you ever wondered why the synoptic gospels, even though they're telling us the same story, they tell it to us from different perspectives? Because God didn't just dismiss the agency of the human that was there. But he used that individual to accomplish his purpose. So the Bible that we hold in our hands was written down by the hands of men, but every word in the original autographs was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. R.C. Sproul, we started with him. I'll, I'll end with him. He says, ultimately, we believe the Bible to be inerrant because it comes from God himself. It is unthinkable to contemplate that God might be capable of error. If you didn't make that connection, you need to make it. The God who is incapable of error, the God who never lies, the God who is always trustworthy and true, the God who is, for whom it is impossible to have an error, he's the one who has superintended and given to us his word. Therefore, his word cannot possibly contain errors. This is our faith. We can trust the Bible because we can trust God. Now, all those other things matter as well. But the fact that God has given us his word is incredibly important. So the Bible is trustworthy. 738, we've got a few more minutes. The Bible is trustworthy. But the Bible is not just trustworthy. It is also clear and understandable. So we talk about the trustworthiness of Scripture. Now let's talk about the clarity of Scripture. Defining biblical clarity goes like this. The clarity of Scripture is actually a Protestant doctrine. And I, I, I kind of want to talk to you about why it's a Protestant doctrine, uh, but it, it, it really comes out of the Reformation. It comes out of the fact that the Catholic Church taught that the average Christian, the average person, could not understand the Word of God, and therefore the magisterium and the popes and the priests had to interpret it for them. And the, I mean, and the Protestant reformer said, no, you're absolutely wrong. We can read and understand the Word of God for ourselves. And so, um, one of the clearest statements uh, outside of the work that, you know, like Luther and Calvin and others were doing on the reliability and clarity of Scripture, one of the clearest statements that came out of that is one that we get from the Westminster Confession. You got familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith? 
Um, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a pres- Presbyterian document, we, we basically created or crafted the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, which is a Reformed Baptist Confession, which is foundational to all Reformed Baptist understanding of theology. Um, and in a modern version of the 1689, here's the, the article on the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. So this is from the 1689. It says this, Some things in Scripture are clearer than others, and some people understand the teachings more clearer than others. However, the things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary measures. Now, if I, if I had gone into the old language, I'd have probably lost half of y'all because I'd have lost myself. But that modern language is really helpful. And what he's saying is that it's not that we can understand everything, but the things that are necessary for us to know about our sin and about the, the holiness of God and about salvation, those things are so clearly set forth. And we say this often, that even children can understand this. You don't have to be a, a theological giant. You don't have to have a theological degree. That might help you. I mean, I would, I would be wrong to say that it, it wouldn't be beneficial to you to get some studying in the original languages to understand the scriptures a little better. You need to have some understanding of the normal measures, the ordinary measures, how a noun and a verb and a pronoun works, right? I mean, that's just how we read. So you need to know how to read and to read well. But beyond that, the scripture is clear and understandable. There are some passages in the Bible that are clearer and easier to understand than others, right? I didn't get an amen, but I got some smiles. Yes. And I know this well, because I spent the last 32 weeks studying the Revelation, trying to figure this thing out. Um, Daniel's prophecies, Ezekiel's visions, the whole book of Revelation, it's not real easy, right? But the whole Bible's not written like that. Some things are more challenging than others to understand. But there's not really that much challenge to understanding the historical narratives of the gospel in the book of Acts. So much of the scriptures are just very clear, very easy. And the Bible has been written down and given to us with the expectation from God that we read it, understand it, and apply it. Otherwise, why would Jesus be saying, have you not read? There's, there's more than one thing he's saying there. Number one, he's implying you should have read this more clearly, but you should also be obeying it because it's so clear and simple that you should be able to come away with a knowledge of what God wants you to do. God actually wants us to know him. Those things, yes, go ahead, Gabe. Um, would it be helpful to compare the clarity of Scripture with the clarity of other so-called holy books? My brother for a while was into a uh, Oh, yeah. And he said, uh, oh, here, on his website, he had the Tao Te Ching uh, up there. And so I'll go read it. And you, you think it's telling you one thing, and then it switches to tell you something else. And then at one point, I switched to a translation. I couldn't even find my spot. Yeah. It was so different. You know, being used to reading the Bible, where you can switch translation to the bank, you know, you work with it. Um, it was just... I just completely lost it, but it was, it's, it started out uh, seeming to make sense, and then it just kind of like devolved into, it wasn't just cryptic, it was a different kind of nonsensical uh, something, and I'm wondering if, uh, you know, if, in an age where we're used to reading instruction manuals and things like that, um, do we have a different perspective on what it means to Clear compared to other cultures and times. Yeah. So, just for the sake of the recording, Gabriel's asked the question Would it be helpful for us to understand more of the clarity of Scripture by comparing it to other religious works? And I think so. Um, if you've never done a comparative religions course, or if you've never thought about that, if you've never picked up um, like the Hindu Vedas or uh, read through parts of the Quran or other things. There, yes, there's a lot of um, m- mysticism. There's a lot of uh, what I would just understand as a lack of clarity. Uh, if, if you struggle to read some of the Proverbs, um, 
ratchet that up a little bit and then open up the Quran and that's pretty much what you're dealing with in a lot of cases. Now in some of those books, you're going to get a historical narrative, um, but there's a, there's a uniqueness to the scriptures when put alongside like works of Taoism and others that, um, that makes it very clear that God has given us his word with the intention and understanding that we, are, we should be able to read it, grasp the meaning of it, and, uh, and teach it to our children, which is what we're commanded to do in Deuteronomy 6, and then apply it in the way that we obey. So yeah, I, I think there is something to be said for the clarity of Scripture versus the lack of clarity that we see in a lot of other religious texts. Good point. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, so uh, we have another. Nick mentioned, uh, uh, recommended a book by Lorraine Bettner um, about Roman Catholicism. Do you know the title? Okay, just Catholicism. And it's comparing uh, a Protestant understanding, a Reformed Protestant understanding of the gospel to a Catholic understanding of what God, what they, they, they claim is the, the dogma of the church. That would be helpful as well. And, and I'm going to get into some of, the, um, some of the objections that are offered to the clarity of Scripture. And one of them is the Catholic objection that it's, it's difficult to understand, which I don't believe that's true. I guess if we're reading Latin and we don't know Latin, it'd be very difficult to understand it. But if we're reading it in our own modern language, it makes a lot of sense. And the Catholic Church did stand in the way of modern translations. Um, but the things that God wants us to know, God has made clear for us. And even those things that are not abundantly clear in one part of Scripture are often made clear in other parts of Scripture so that the essential me message of the Bible can be understood, can be applied to the way we live. Uh, some people understand the Bible better than others, right? And that's why we have teachers. That's why we, we look to people. That's why we ask questions. I have individuals in my life that I get stumped often and I want to reach out to them. I've got a, a handful of dead saints around me when I study. Zach came in my office today and he just saw books everywhere. And I'm, I'm trying to learn from men, uh, from brothers and sisters more knowledgeable than myself. So there are some things that are hard to understand. And it might benefit you to take Mark Ritchie's Greek class. But you don't have to do that. You don't have to have a theological degree to open your Bible in your language and read it and understand it. Ordinary people using ordinary measures are able to achieve an understanding of what God has given us. Now, for most of us, the, the idea of the Bible being clear is not really earth-shattering news, right? Like, why do we need to spend much time on this? Um, maybe we don't, but I think we should. We instinctively accept that the Bible is clear. Otherwise, we wouldn't pick it up. Um, but there are plenty of objections to that. Let me give you a few, and these are ones that I've already mentioned one of them. Uh, but there's, okay, so I'll just give you maybe two or three. There's a lot more, maybe a little more. So the first one is the mystical objection. And the mystical objection sounds very spiritual. It sounds very sincere because it claims that God is so complex and so transcendent that he cannot be described meaningfully with mere words. Have you ever heard that argument? The idea is that God is beyond the ability of human language. And often those who make this claim believe that they need to rescue God from our man-made theologizing. This came out a couple of years ago in, in, in different movements. It was referred to as the conversation about God. And it, it died pretty quickly, thank, thankfully. But the whole idea was that we can't fully understand God. God can't be captured in words. And the truth is... Yes, God is immensely complex and incomprehensible. But that doesn't mean that there aren't aspects of God's character and nature that, that he could reveal to us with a measure of clarity and certainty. And that's what he's done. And God has revealed himself to us in his word. I don't think anybody in this room um, would, would make the claim that we understand everything there is to know about God. I mean, even the Apostle Paul, as he 
understands the, begins to understand the gospel more clearly as he's writing the book of Romans, it seems like he gets to a point at the end of chapter 11 where he just becomes overwhelmed and his response is, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory. So this doxology erupts out of Paul who's, who's the one holding the pen. And he's saying, we can't even fully understand this God. And yet he's trying to help us understand him in words that are clear and helpful. So the doctrine of biblical clarity does assume that there are things about God that we won't understand fully at this point, but that there are other things that God has revealed to us that are clear and they are understandable. So the myth, mystical objection kind of falls apart. The Catholic objection is an interesting one, and because we're Protestant, Reformed, Baptist, and we look at, uh, well, at least I do, I, preach, I, only, I only preach a handful of sermons annually that are not in keeping with a series uh, and one of them is I always preach a sermon on the Protestant Reformation as close as possible to Reformation Sunday. Uh, the others are you know, Christmas, Easter, I'll preach a Sanctity of Life sermon, and then I'll preach on the Reformation because I think it's a massive point in history when God restored the gospel to the, the world. But the, the Catholic objection is one that Protestant reformers had to deal with. They wrote plenty about it. Catholic theologians argue that the Bible as a whole is not sufficiently clear and therefore it needs the aid of tradition, papal interpretation, in order for it to be made understandable. The Catholic Church has long argued and still does that the average person is more apt to misunderstand and misapply the scriptures on their own and therefore they need the help of their priest and the magisterium to get it right. And thankfully the reformers disagreed with them. And not only did they encourage Christians to study, to read and study and interpret God's word on their own, but they also taught them how to read. And they translated the Bible into the common language so that they could read God's word for themselves. The reformers argued that scripture alone was sufficient to clearly teach us all the truth that is necessary for salvation and spiritual life. And I'm going to give you a quote from Luther because I just like to do that. Um, if you don't, if you've never read anything by Luther, you don't know Luther, he is a, he likes to fight. He, he likes to argue. And the common polemical method of the day was to insult the person that you were arguing against. Um, Jeremy's snickering out there in the foyer because he has the, what's, what's the little app that you can, I probably shouldn't even say that. Um, the Luther insulter or something like that. Please, please don't look that up. I'm, I just ruined it. But here's what Luther says. I should have just done that. He says, but if many things still remain unclear, he's arguing against the Catholic objection. If many things still remain unclear to many, this does not arise from obscurity in the scriptures, but from our own blindness, our own lack of understanding. Let therefore wretched men cease to impute with blasphemous perverseness the darkness and obscurity to their own heart to the all clear scriptures of God. Nothing whatever is left obscure or ambiguous, but all things that are in scripture are by the word brought forth into the clearest light and proclaimed to the whole world. That was my best Luther right there. So that's an objection that I think is soundly defeated. The pluralism objection, which is one we've already talked about, is this idea that how can we say that the Bible is clear and understandable if there's so much disagreement about what it means? Why are there so many denominations and so many four views books? And this, ob this objection is... I mean, there, there are all kinds of different assumptions that we bring to Scripture. Um, we can get into some of that. I don't think that the pluralism objection holds up especially when we're, when we're talking about the clarity of Scripture. We can understand what God's Word says. Now, how we might interpret that or how we might apply that is going to be different. Um, but the objection is not that one interpretation is greater than another, but that no one has any sufficient grounds whereby they can make any interpretation, and that clearly is not true. And this, this argument is kind of a staple of modern or postmodern thought kind of goes back to that, you understand the Bible in your way, and I understand the Bible in my way, and therefore truth has just been declared to be something other than truth. 
Uh, at best, what an individual thinking along these lines would say is that everyone's entitled to their own opinions and personal interpretations, but they will reject that the Bible can be understood to clearly communicate any objective truth. And one of the big problems with that is the Bible itself. The Bible wants to help us understand that truth is not relative. It is clearly spoken. And it is the standard by which God is going to judge and measure everyone. Have you ever been in an argument with someone like that? If you met someone in a coffee shop and you were going to talk about Scripture, and let's say you're going to present the meaning of Ephesians 2, that you know, apart from Christ we're all dead in our sins and all these kind of things. Well, that person might look up to you and say, well, that's just your interpretation. And you might respond by explaining what the Greek terms mean and explaining the sentence structure and saying, well, well, this leads to this and this is the argument that the Apostle Paul is making. The whole grammatical syntax helps us understand what he's driving at. And they might reply, yes, but human language is not adequate to accurately represent the reality of God. And at that point, you realize you're not, this is not apples and apples anymore. <laughs> this person has a a view of truth, this person has a view of reality, this person has a view of of language that is not consistent with the foundations upon which the Bible was written. At the end of the day, you really can't get anywhere because you're on two different foundations. Now, you can still speak the truth, and you should. Trust that the Lord's going to work through that. But that person wants to deny the clarity and understandability of Scripture, not accept it. Are there any other objections that we've just completely missed? Maybe something that you've gone through? And if so, how have you responded to those? The reason I ask that question is not just because we all have all these different experiences with random people at coffee shops. But how are we going to respond when someone that we care about, a child, comes home from college or a neighbor comes over and sits down at your table or someone who you've known forever and you've always thought they were fine. They, they understand the gospel. They've, and yet they come in and they begin to question things. And How are you going to respond? How are you going to give them some truth that they can understand and apply to help them gain more confidence in the Scriptures? I'll tell you what I would do first. Is I'd turn to the Scriptures The Bible is not just dead words on a page, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So whether that person trusts in the reliability and clarity of Scripture or not, I do. And I also trust in the power of God to use His Word in the lives of people. And so even an individual who maybe won't believe it, we still speak the truth and trust that God will not allow His Word to return void. What else? Yeah, Christy. Praise God.
<laughs> I think that's a hard pass on that one. Um, yeah, so it, it is important to know where people are coming from. In modern um, Judaism is a far cry from biblical Judaism. I mean, even in Jesus' own day, and here's one of the reasons why I think the approach is sound for us to speak the truth, whether a person wants to hear it or not, is because that's what Jesus did continually. And he used different methods, right? I mean, he told stories, he told parables, he used the Socratic method, and he asked questions to kind of work people around, but, but he brought it back to the basic, simple truths of Scripture, and he he was content to walk away from that conversation. Now, he might have been grieved in his heart, right? As we, we hear in some cases, he was grieved in his heart as he walks away from an individual who didn't enter into the kingdom. And yet, Jesus was, he had, his trust in the authority and power of God's word was such that he used it in those arguments and he left it at that. And so I think it's important for us to be able to do that. But it is good for us to know the foundations that people, uh, you know, kind of rest on. Uh, the The baseline assumptions. I don't mind sharing my baseline assumption. My, my baseline presupposition is that the Bible is the Word of God, right? That's my axiom. I'm going to start there. You can tell me where you're going to start. Here's where I'm going to start, and I'm just going to keep feeding you that, that scripture. Um, so yeah, I, I think you can say no to certain things that, that put you in an immoral place, but, um, but I think we, I guess the reason that I want us to do this and the reason I want to spend time talking about these doctrines that may be kind of obscure, and you're like, why are we doing that? Um, is that on the end, theology is intended to be immensely practical. And if we have this understanding and this trust of Scripture, it is going to affect the way we interact with other people. It'll give us a trust in the Word of God to do its work. And we don't know how it's going to work, right? I mean, Paul said that. i Planted a seed, Apollos watered. God's the one that's going to provide the growth. And we have to trust him for that too. All right, well, I'm going to wrap this up with some concluding thoughts and then we can stay and talk and um, somebody can come claim this book. Throughout the Bible, we see that God communicates to men and women and he expects us not only to understand what he has said, but also to obey what he has said. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets speak the word of God and they call on the people to read and understand and apply that teaching to their lives. I even mentioned earlier uh, in, in the Shema of Israel and in Deuteronomy 6, the people of God were to take the scriptures that were trustworthy and clear and teach them to their own children. The king of Israel was required to write out a copy of the law of God and keep it with them so that they could meditate on it day and night so that they would know how to practically lead the nation in a way that honored and pleased God. The Bible assumes for itself that it is trustworthy, that it is clear, we can understand it and apply it. And, and Jesus did the exact same thing. No one had a greater trust in the scriptures than Jesus did. And one of the things that we do in covenant class, and it's probably been a long time since you've been in covenant classes, we talk about um, well, Dan usually teaches. I don't, I don't teach it as much as Dan does, but Dan teaches the different ways in which Jesus used the Word of God, main, main, the Old Testament, in his arguments, and, and he basically affirms all of the Old Testament by looking at the, the writings and looking at the historical books and looking at the prophets, and he affirms them all, going all the way back to the very beginning. He, he likes to spend a, a little bit of time in Genesis 1 and 2. Because Jesus trusted the word of God. He used it to, to teach, to correct, to rebuke, and to train his own disciples. And we need to do the same thing. The doctrines of the trustworthiness and clarity of Scripture are underlying assumptions for the entire Bible. They form the ground level of how we interact with the word of God. And so if we lose these things, we lose our ability to really know with certainty what God has said. So it's important for you. I hope it's been helpful for you as well. By the way, if you do want my notes... I will put them in a PDF and I'll send them to you. You just need to let me know and I'll create a little email list and I'll, I'll send them out. But otherwise, let me, uh, let me pray for you. You've got about 10 minutes before the kids run back in here. So let's pray together and then we'll just fellowship. Father, thank you for time to study, to think, to talk, to get to know each other, but especially to be sharpened in our understanding of your word. 
I pray that if there are lingering questions in our minds, we can ask those things and, and, and not just ask them of one another, but also ask them of you and ask them of your word. And, and I pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that you would guide us to the truth and that you would give us a rock-solid confidence in your word. Uh, I thank you for this church. and I thank you for what you're doing among us. I pray that you'd continue to use us, bless us, grow us, and accomplish your purpose through us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.